Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your perfect word. I pray this morning, Father, that you would be with me for the sake of your people, those who hear. God, for the sake of everyone in this room, would you guide my mind, my tone, my delivery, my content, all things. God, I beg for your help, and I pray that everyone would be enabled to hear. And this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In Exodus 14, you don't have to turn there, but the nation of Israel came to the shores of the Red Sea. Well over 600,000 people, who knows how many livestock, had lived in slavery in Egypt for the past 430 years. None of them had been alive in the days of Joseph when Israel enjoyed favor in Egypt. So from the youngest infant, most likely to the oldest adult, they had spent their entire lives as slaves. But God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Israel cried out to him, he listened and he came down to deliver him, to, li- to deliver them. They had seen the Nile River turn to blood. This multitude had seen Egypt overrun by frogs and gnats and flies. They had seen all of their livestock live while all of Egypt's died. They had seen hail fall from heaven. They had seen swarms of locusts. They had seen Egypt covered in a darkness so dark that it could be felt when they had light where they were. They had heard the weeping rising up from every home in Egypt when countless firstborn sons died the morning after they had put blood on the doorposts and frames of their own homes and the angel of death passed over them. They walked out of Egypt unharmed as God ransomed them and set them free, plundering Egypt. God led them in on the wilderness with a cloud by day and a fire by night. And as they were camping between Migdal and the Red Sea, they heard a sound. The ground began to shake. They covered their eyes. They looked off into the distance, into the horizon. Was it a cloud? Was it a sandstorm? And then they realized the Egyptians were coming after them. Pharaoh had changed his mind. They looked to the east. They looked to the west. There was nowhere to go. Behind them, their backs are against the sea. The Egyptian army is in front of them. How are they not going to be overrun by this furious army? In that moment, in that moment of fear, it didn't matter what mighty wonders they had seen. In the face of fear and death, their exodus was forgotten. It meant nothing. And they turned to Moses. Why in the world did you take us out of Egypt? Did you free us just so that we could come this far and then die like dogs out here in the desert. We told you to leave us alone. We told you to just let us stay there and serve the Egyptians. At least then we had somewhere to sleep. We were allowed to live. We had some form of stability. There were no surprises. It wasn't really all that bad being a slave, Moses. Maybe, who knows, maybe one day a new pharaoh would come or this one would have changed his mind and we would have become citizens again. And Instead, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, remembered the Exodus. And he remembered what happened when hope was lost in Israel. He remembered that it all began with a display of God's covenant mercy and faithfulness. As he freed Israel from slavery, a people were led out, 
created by God's mercy and then called to be holy, to mark themselves as His own in the world and to be a light to the nations as they sojourn through the wilderness towards the promised land. The pattern repeats in 1 Peter chapter 1, but not everything is the same this morning. Peter called the elect exiles of Asia Minor to holiness through the object of their hope. The gospel has ransomed us and made us alive that we might be holy, beloved, by setting our hope fully on grace. So now may we hear and believe God's word together, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1 at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So, Peter is very deliberate with his placement of Old Testament quotations. Peter quotes the Old Testament eight times in this letter. In this letter, Apart from Hebrews and Revelation, no other book in the New Testament relies as heavily on the Old Testament as 1 Peter does. This letter follows the same pattern in the beginning here as the Exodus where a people in bondage to slavery are called out by God, set free, called to be His unique people in the world, called to be holy. Now God's mercy has been poured out on the elect exiles in Asia Minor as it has been poured out on us who believe. We have been set free. And after our exodus from sin, He now calls us to be His holy people as we sojourn through the wilderness of this world, suffering trials towards the promised land. Only this time, all the terms of the command are different. God promised a land to Israel that they were responsible to keep by their obedience to the law. If they kept the law, they kept the land. If they didn't, they lost the land. And all the covenant curses fell on them. Well, what has Peter done in the first 12 verses of this letter? As He calls us to be holy, He has grounded their hope in the very fact that their inheritance, their promised land, is being kept in heaven for them, guarded by God, where it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
So by the time Peter calls us to holiness, it's no longer a command that comes with conditions. The conditions have already been met by another on our behalf. They have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. They are pure. It's the first thing he told them. The command for the new covenant people of God is not to make themselves holy through their obedience to the law, but through the hope that they have because God's grace has been poured out on them. Our hope does not come from obeying commands in verse 13. Beloved, our performance cannot be the source of our hope, ever. Grace is the source of our hope. So what does it mean now, if that's the case, if we're already accepted in the Beloved, what does it mean for us to be holy? What is holiness for the elect exile in this world? This is the application of Peter's entire theme. If we miss this, we miss the whole point of his letter. Peter started with the gospel and heaven. Do you notice that? He starts with the gospel and heaven. Just like Paul did, if you remember, in Colossians. These spiritual exiles had come to faith in Christ, probably believing, as you would have at that time, as Christians have always believed, and rightfully so, that the return of Jesus Christ was very close. But now, for them, too much time had passed. They came to faith thinking, it's soon, and now this time keeps passing. And rather than being home, where everything was peaceful, now they're adrift in the sea of the world, living these difficult lives where they're suffering trials. Persecution was starting. They were beginning to suffer. Their lives are characterized, Peter tells them, by trials. They're stuck down in the hole of displacement in this world. Freedom and peace are nowhere in sight for these believers. But there's another sailor named Peter, and he's up in the lookout perch, if you will. His eyes are on the horizon, and he is calling to them in their trials. Here in chapter 1, look up. Look up, I can see it. I can see the shore. Our hope is alive. So he starts off by reminding them of where they actually are, of where Christ is. If your soul is being kept in heaven, set your mind there. Right? Be heavenly minded. That is, set your hope, as Peter says it. Remember, Paul says, set your mind on Christ, on things above, not on the things of this world. Peter says the same thing like this. Set your hope fully on grace. The grace that will be yours when Jesus Christ returns. Set it all there. Set it fully there. Completely there. That's what's new in the equation. When we see that command repeated to be holy. Obedient children now set their hope on grace rather than the passions of their former ignorance, be that sinful lust, or, in Israel's case, the attempt to be righteous through works. The call to holiness is a call to focus on the positional aspect of our salvation. To set our minds on what God has done for us, rather than on what we are doing. We're not checking off lists anymore, beloved. That is what it means to be holy. Holy is heavenly minded. It is a change in perspective which changes our behavior. 
It's just that we never really see exactly how much or how extensive that is because we're always exclusively looking to grace. Our eyes aren't on ourselves. We aren't tracking our progress. Our minds are fixed on Him and our lives are changing. Beloved, the indicative, the the statement of what is true always sets the stage for the believer. Always. Always. Nothing you do makes something come true. Because everything is true that Christ has done, we so live. And this command here is no different. Listen to how 1 John lines up so so closely with this. This is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. This is Scripture. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You hear that? There it is. There's the statement of what is true. We are God's children because of God's love. All those who believe. Notice how this mirrors almost exactly what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1. Continuing in 1 John. The reason why the world does not know us, we are exiles in trial, right? We're not at home here, is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, not might be, will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when He comes, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, in grace, in that appearing, purifies Himself as He is pure. That's holiness. You see that? Hope is how we are holy. Hope is what makes us holy. Hope purifies now. Not work, not effort. Hoping in Christ. Setting your mind on the grace fully that will come to you. And nowhere else. On nothing else. We have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. We are holy. That's why God's judgment here is impartial. You can't bring Him anything better than the blood of His Son. He he has one standard by which to judge everything. And He has in Jesus all that He requires. He judges, judges each one based on whether or not their hope is in God's form of salvation. The impartial judgment of God is a testimony to the world about the sufficiency of His Son's blood alone to save and not our effort. We are holy. Right? Because God said we will be. Not by trying to do good things and shun bad things. We are holy through our hope. We realize what we are by setting our minds on the grace of Jesus, not on our behavior. Purity comes as we are continually repentant for being earth dwellers whose minds were formerly and ignorantly set on ourselves. God says you weren't ransomed by worthless things. We used to try to find hope in this world through all the passions of our former ignorance. But now we live in fear, in reverence to God, even though we're in exile because He's already made us His children. And in verses 20 and 21, Peter wants us to know that Jesus and the salvation He brings to us by grace were not an afterthought in the mind of God. He's giving more knowledge here to fuel our hope Beloved, 
Not only did the Old Testament prophets serve us in verses 10 and 12, but Jesus Himself was made manifest and purchased salvation in these last times for your sake. Those of us that He has caused to be born again, those who through Him are believers in God, Jesus was sent for your faith, beloved, to hold you and I up. You shall be holy, for I am holy, is more than a command. Remember, Jesus has fulfilled. He has met the requirement of the law, including the command to be holy. So it's more than a command for us. It's a statement of fact of what God was going to do for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are holy. So to be precise, holiness here is that set-apartness from the world that we have because the object of our hope is outside of this world. Hope in the Bible is what truly makes us distinct. Hope. Hope is what makes us exiles to the world because they don't have that. Be holy. That is, set your hope fully on grace. We've been ransomed from feudal ways in verse 18, from hopelessness, by precious blood in verse 19. We used to put our hope in perishable things like silver and gold. That made us unholy. But now, because we've been ransomed from this hopelessness by the precious blood of Christ, we're no longer enslaved to feudal ways. We have hope because Christ has saved us from hopelessness. We've been born again in verse 23 of imperishable seed. Our new life didn't come through perishable seed. Our new life didn't come from all the futile quests to free ourselves from hopelessness by the things of the world. And that imperishable seed, Peter says, is the living and abiding Word of God, which is the Gospel in verse 25 that declares all of this grace to us. So, Peter says in 2.1, you see that? You see what kicks off chapter 2? So, so as he starts to explain the ways that setting our hope fully on grace will practically affect our lives, he does so as the result of where our minds are. That word so means that what follows is the result of what we have set our hope on. Pure conduct is the result of heavenly mindedness. That's why he uses the word so to make his transition. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. So, in other words, because all of this is true, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. All of it. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, put away all the behaviors that result from and display hopelessness. That's what's unique about the sins listed in 2.1. Be holy. Set your hope on grace. And thereby be freed from the need for anyone or anything in this world to give us what only Christ can. All sin is the result of hopelessness. 
the result of the futility of trying to gain self-salvation or self-validation through works, through effort. When the living hope that comes from setting our minds fully on grace is not present, when we don't have that, when it's lacking, we will need other people and other things to provide for us, and they cannot do it. Nobody is Jesus, except Jesus. And our frustration and futility in that search in other things than Him for hope will cause malice. It will cause malice. We'll not be able to stand other people because they won't be what we want them to be. They won't act how we want them to act. They will not see the world we see it the way we see it. They'll not think the way we think. They won't respond the way we want them to. And it will create malice. It will cause deceit. We'll have to lie and maneuver and jockey for position so that we can try to maintain a sense of control and predictability in our lives. We'll be hypocritical because we'll have to maintain an image of ourselves that others find appealing. If those in whom we trust for our hope think poorly of us, we can't survive. We'll be envious of those that look like we want to look. So what do we have to do to protect ourselves? We'll have to slander, tear them down so that we look better to the people's approval we have to have. In 122, we were called to love one another earnestly and sincerely because our hearts have been made pure by the blood of Jesus. Beloved, do you see how much hope affects holiness? Just like in Colossians 1, 4, and 5, love is the result of hope. Always has been, always will be. The bar of the quality of love in the church is set so high because the seed of that love is the gospel. The living and abiding word of God. The lack in the church of earnest and sincere brotherly love for one another is not going to be solved by taking classes on how to show sincere and earnest love. We go back to the promise to cure us when we aren't loving the way we've been called to love. We go back to the promise to be holy. Beloved, our... By the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus Himself connected this love for one another to the salt and light of the church in the world? Jesus said they'll know us by our love. That's how we'll be marked out as the church. And what is the source of love? It is hope. So what are we always trying to do when, when, when we aren't seeing converts at the rate we think we should see them? What do we do? We tweak our method. Because we think all that we need to do is tweak the information, light a couple candles, do some bells and whistles, make it more appealing, then people will come in, and then people... No. Beloved, evangelism is anemic where there is not genuine love for one another in the church. You can have as many crusades as you want. You can yell and shout as much as you want. You can threaten and instill fear as much as you want. Evangelism will be anemic until the church loves the church. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. 
If our hope is not set fully on grace, we can't love. Beloved, we can't export what we don't have. It's impossible to proclaim the love of Christ for people even though we are sinners when we don't love each other even though we're family. If we have not set our hope fully on grace, if we aren't banking completely on the goodness and righteousness and blood and the promise of Jesus for us in the gospel, then we can never be holy. We can never obey these commands. That's why we create other ones that we call holiness. Because we can't obey the real ones. So we create this Christian identity that is holy that has nothing to do with what's actually in the Bible. Because the law crushes us and we feel it. And when it crushes us, rather than throwing all of our hope on Christ, we remove ourselves from grace and try to figure out a way to work into it backwards, and then maybe God will smile on us. There's only Christ. There's only Christ. Faith is the only way. Faith is the only way. Beloved, focus in on how your mind sits in position to Jesus. And don't focus on anyone or anything else. Focus on your mind and how it feels, how it looks at Jesus. The fight is in here. It's not out there. The central command of the letter here is not, notice this, it is not, listen, make sure you think about grace sometimes. Because, you know, you don't want to get lost You don't want to get burned down. So make sure it's on your mind from time to time. Always go back to it when you have to. Make sure you always have the underlying understanding, of course, that grace is technically how you got saved. But if you want hope, if you want any kind of assurance, you're going to have to look to your performance. And if the evidence is not there, if the evidence there is not good enough, you're going to have to go back to the drawing board and try again. That is not the central command of the letter. That always results in a church filled with people like the people in chapter 2, verse 1. That's the whole point of the way the letter is going. Why do we think Peter goes right to these things in 2.1 on the heels of where we're supposed to set our hope? Because they're intricately connected. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Christ returns. We cannot spare an ounce, not a millimeter of our hope on anything other than Christ. On anything. So, beloved, we not only look to the coming of Christ, we must look to the Christ that is coming. Don't search the Scriptures thinking that in figuring everything out, then you will have life. The Scriptures bear witness to Jesus. They bear witness to the object of our hope. Beloved, long for the pure spiritual milk. That's the Gospel here in context. And not long for it as it's milk and then you'll grow up to other things. Here, the the focus is on how a baby needs milk That's how you and I need Christ in the gospel for us. This word is the good news that was preached to us. By the gospel, the promise that 
from God that you have been ransomed, that you are born again, that you are holy. By that you will grow up into what you have set your hope on, salvation. You see, it's yes, it's finished. But our minds, which is the battlefield where Peter is dealing with here, or fighting here, our minds don't comprehend that. Our, our minds do not naturally, instinctively comprehend that it is finished. That our hope should be fully set on grace. That's why the battlefield for the believer is always their own mind. The enemy wants you and I to think it's outside of us. And if we fix what is outside of us, we'll be okay on the inside. That's the devil at work. Christ wants your hope set fully, your mind set fully on Him. We need to grow up into that kind of faith and confidence. We don't naturally possess it. The cry of the church has to be, it has to be, God, open the floodgates of heaven and rain the pure spiritual milk of the gospel on us that we might finally grow up into salvation. It's just a laser focus for the church in the Bible. Just just laser-like, just on that. Stay right there. Stay right where you are when that's how you're thinking. The gospel has ransomed us and made us alive that we might be holy by setting our hope fully on grace. So Moses turned to the panic-stricken, terrified, hopeless Israelites and said almost precisely what Peter is saying to his audience in chapter 1. What through the Holy Spirit he is saying to us this morning, to you and I, as we struggle with the threats this world and our own weaknesses make to our hope, as they come over the horizon, charging for our souls, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And during the long night of fear and hesitation and uncertainty, as God kept his cloud between the Israelites and the Egyptians, Moses stretched his hand out over the sea and God sent a wind from the east that swept the waters back on both sides as God's people walked through on dry ground, safe. Peter stands in front of us today, like Moses, as the weight of the world might be causing us to look at him like he's crazy when we read these things. The world is out there, isn't it? The week is coming. Monday's coming. Whatever it is that weighs heavy on our minds in this moment is coming. It's out there. And there's nowhere to run. Beloved, don't give in to the desires of your flesh that tell you the grass is greener in Egypt or the sand is more golden or however that metaphor would work for a northern African country. Don't look to it. Don't trade who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for the futile temporary things of this world. Beloved, you stand firm in Christ. Fix your mind on the salvation of the Lord that He has worked for you once and for all in His Son. He has brought us through the water. He has rescued us. You are sojourning home, elect exile. And you will get there. So don't be swayed this morning by the pole of Egypt. It's futility. It's ignorance. It's a lie. Beloved, the object of your hope is mighty to save. 
Believer, you are a child of the living God by the grace of His Son. Fix your mind on Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when He appears. He is coming to you with a fountain of grace. You've been saved, believer. You can be saved, wandering unbeliever, this morning. Your redemption is drawing near, believer. It's nearer now than when you and I first believed. I don't know how many years away it is, but I know it's closer than it was yesterday. Canaan is just over the mountains in front of us, beloved. Keep sojourning. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Look to what we can know and live. Christ came for our sakes. And He came for all who will believe on Him, including you this morning. Do you understand that, Christians? We don't get our hope from what we do. We get our hope from this Savior we can't stop talking about. And He is yours this morning, 100%. If you believe on Him, And believer, He is just as 100% yours as He is for anyone else. I'm going to close us in prayer. We're going to sing a hymn. I'll be down in front before we take the Lord's Supper. If you need to pray, please come forward. Father, I thank You for the time that You've given us this morning to look into Your Word. God, I thank You so much for the source of our hope, that it is not inside of us. It is Christ. But Lord, those who believe are your children now, and we we, we can't get removed from the family. So Father, give us the hope that purifies us. Give us the hope that makes us holy. Let us see your Son and count everything as loss. Everything as loss for the sake of knowing him. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.